However you find yourself listening along with me right now, I want to thank you for being here wherever it is that you are. Um, having watched the sermon in my own home the past two Sunday mornings, I understand the, the struggle it can be to, to put away distractions and to stay focused on what we're hearing. Uh, when we gather physically in the same room, the whole service is geared toward preparing our heart for this sacred moment when we hear God's Word. We have songs and prayers that are all meant to sober us up to the fact that the God of the universe is about to speak to us through His Word. So I want us to do something a little different today. I want to encourage us all to take a moment right now, wherever you are, set aside any distractions and focus our minds and hearts on what we're doing together when we open God's Word. So before we even open our Bibles together today, I want to pray for us and ask God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. So let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful that uh, Your Word is not bound to any one particular place. God, we're thankful that You are powerful and authoritative and Your Word is just as true if we can hear it in the same room or if we can hear it in our homes or maybe in our cars, wherever it may be. So Lord, I pray today that, that right now as, as people all over this county hear my voice, Lord, that at this very moment your spirit would move and would prepare our hearts to hear from you. Lord, we're thankful that we have a word from you. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself to you. And I pray that you would help us right now at this very moment. Lord, to set aside anything that might be distracting us, to take a moment and pause and to prepare our hearts to hear from the one true and living God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 19, the gospel according to John chapter 19. Our son uh, Nixon loves riding the merry-go-round at the mall in Dothan. At least he used to love it back in the olden days when we could go out in public and whatnot. Uh, when I think back on that, I'm, I'm filled with a mixture of nostalgia and cringing. Uh, if the Dothan Mall had some kind of reward system, uh, I'm pretty sure that thanks to grandparents, Nixon would be platinum or diamond status. And I can't tell you how many times we've had an interaction that goes something kind of like this. Nixon will be riding on one of the animals on the merry-go-round. Let's say he's on the gorilla. And the whole time he's riding, he keeps looking around and wondering what he can ride next. After this, can I ride the dragon? And my answer is usually something like, son, why don't you enjoy the ride you're currently on instead of worrying about whether you're going to get to ride again? Don't just keep looking ahead but focus on what you're doing right now and the joy that you have right now. And then I think to myself, that'll preach. Now, we could apply that illustration to all kinds of things, but today I want to use it to help us to slow down as we move from the death of Jesus to His resurrection. Uh, last week, Colby helped us reflect on the death of Jesus on, on Good Friday, on the willingness of Jesus to stand in our place, not just to die, 
but to suffer injustice and humiliation and shame, and most of all, to bear the holy wrath of God against our sin. He had no sin but ours, and we have no righteousness but His. Rather than moving quickly from Jesus' death straight on to His resurrection, what I want us to do today is just to slow down and to think about the time in between those two pivotal events. So we're going to read in John chapter 19. We're going to begin reading in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pause there and pray once more. God, having heard your word today, I pray that you would use this word by your spirit in our hearts and in our lives. God, open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see what you would have to say to us and what you would have to show us about yourself and about us and what you have done on our behalf. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're focusing today on this period of time between the death of Jesus on Friday afternoon and the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday morning. Now, to make things a little easier for me and for you, I'm just going to refer to this time between those two events, the way Christians have for a long time. I'm going to call this Holy Saturday. Now, Colby's sermon last week was about Good Friday. Next week will be about Resurrection Sunday. Today is about Holy Saturday. Of course, we're really talking about the time between sundown on Good Friday and sunrise on Resurrection Sunday, but we're, we're lumping all of that time under the phrase Holy Saturday. 
It's a bit ironic that we would come to John's account of the gospel to reflect on this time because he does not appear to say anything at all about what happened on Saturday. In fact, look again at the last verse of chapter 19, verse 42. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now John makes reference several times to the day of preparation, which was the day before the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was on Saturday. The day of preparation would have been Friday. That's the day when Jesus died. So chapter 19 ends late on Friday afternoon, right before the sun goes down. Notice how chapter 20 begins, chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Okay, so chapter 19 ends on Friday, just before sundown. Chapter 20 begins on Sunday, just before sunrise. So John skips right over this whole time period that we're talking about, right? Not necessarily. I want you to see here, and I want you to, to hear with me some echoes of things that have happened in the Old Testament. John loves to show us how there are echoes of things that happened before. He, he says several times in this passage about things, about Scripture being fulfilled. But even beyond that, there are these reverberations, these echoes of things that have come before. For example, John begins his account of the gospel with the same opening line as the Old Testament. How does the Old Testament begin? Genesis 1.1, "...in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth." John, how does he begin his account of the gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here in John 19 as John describes the death and burial of Jesus, there are once again echoes of Genesis 1. I want to draw our attention today to three echoes, three echoes that we can hear from Genesis. First, look carefully at verse 30. John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, "'It is finished.'" And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now we're going to come back to the phrase, it is finished. But for now, notice how John describes the death of Jesus. He says, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I want you to just take that phrase, lock it into your mind for just a moment. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And now I want to read for you how Genesis describes the creation of the first man. This is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So in both Hebrew and in Greek, the word for breath is the same word you would use for Spirit. God breathed into Adam the breath or spirit of life. And it's the combination of a body and a spirit that makes one alive. 
So when Jesus bows his head in John 19, 30 and gives up his spirit, this is the moment when he truly dies. Now, pop quiz for those of you who are listening at home. On what day, on what day of the week did God form Adam of dust from the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life? On what day of the week did that take place? Answer, the sixth day, Friday. Okay, on what day of the week did Jesus bow his head and give up his spirit? Also on the sixth day, Friday, the day before the Sabbath. So what Jesus does here in John 19, verse 30, when he bows his head and gives up his spirit, it's a reversal of what happened to the first man, Adam. God formed Adam from the dust and breathed into his nostrils the spirit of life. Now the second Adam, Jesus, gives up his spirit and his body is lowered back to the dust. Jesus is enduring the undoing of life. Although he himself never sinned, he is suffering the penalty of all those in Adam who have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Yet he endured this not because he was overcome by death, but because he had finished all that he was given to accomplish. His life was not taken from him. He willingly gave it up. That's one echo of Genesis that we can hear in John 19. Whereas God formed Adam from the dust and breathed into him the spirit of life, Jesus breathes out the spirit of life and his body is laid back in the dust. That's not the only echo we can hear. Let's look down at verse 38. After these things, that is, after the soldiers have come through and verified that Jesus and the others are truly dead, after these things... Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Now I want us to pause right there, and I want you to think about what happened to Jesus' body in the hours leading up to his crucifixion. Uh, Colby helped us to, to meditate on this last week when we thought about Good Friday, Jesus was treated with unspeakable injustice and humiliation and shame. He was mocked and beaten. He was stripped naked and hung up for all to see. People walked by and wagged their head at Him. Even those who were crucified next to Him hurled insults at Him. That is, until one of them had a change of heart. But then comes the cry of accomplishment in verse 30. It is finished. He bows his head, gives up his spirit, and a reversal begins to unfold. The one who had been treated with injustice and brutality begins to receive honor. Rather than his body being beaten and whipped, it is taken into the care of one of his disciples, Joseph of Arimathea. Rather than being hung up in nakedness and shame, he is clothed in linen. And rather than being thrown into a mass grave as would have been the custom for one who is crucified, Jesus' body is taken and laid in a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Now look at verse 39 with me. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, 
came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, I don't know what that means to you, if that makes any sense to you, but this provision for the body of Jesus was extravagant. It was a public display of honor. And don't you just love seeing that picture of of Nicodemus? And John even reminds us that previously he had come to Jesus by night. And now a transformation has taken place in his life. Now he is visibly, publicly identifying with Jesus and honoring him. In fact, what they provide for Jesus' body, it's practically what you would expect of a royal burial, which may indicate how Nicodemus esteemed Jesus. So while Jesus' body was treated with tremendous shame and dishonor before his death, after his death, God sees to it that he is cared for and honored. And it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. There's a commentator named Herman Ritterbos, and this is what he says about those verses. When the special care of Jesus' friends for his body is completed, there is for him close to where he was crucified a tomb, one that lay ready to receive him. And it is not a tomb fitting for a crucified criminal for whom even a mass grave would do. It is rather in the shadowed isolation of a supervised garden. That the tomb has never been used also fits the providential sacred character of what now takes place there. When Jesus has completed his task on earth, everything in the immediate surroundings proves to be available to him as though it has long been reserved and made ready for him. It's a picture of the providence of God that he has prepared this place for Jesus' body to be laid. Now, with that picture in your mind, I want you to listen once again to Genesis 2. This is the very next verse after God has just formed Adam from the dust, after he's just breathed into his nostrils the breath or spirit of life. Genesis 2, verse 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So in Genesis 2, God forms Adam from the dust. He breathes into him the spirit of life, and then he places him in a garden that he had prepared for him. And here in John 19, Jesus, the true and better Adam, gives up his spirit. He's lowered to the dust, and then he is placed in a garden that God had prepared for him. This is what the song is talking about when it says, Come behold the wondrous mystery, he the perfect son of man. In his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. Jesus is the true and better Adam. But that's not all. There's one more echo that I want us to hear together. Chapter 19 ends by saying in verse 42, So because of the Jewish day of preparation, 
since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And that is where Jesus' body rested on Holy Saturday. His work was accomplished. In His own words, it is finished. And because there was nothing left to do, on the Sabbath, He rested from His work. Jesus is not only the true and better Adam, He's not only the perfect Son of Man, He is also the true and living God. Like God, He finished His work on the sixth day, and on the seventh day He rested. Listen again to the creation story in Genesis. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. In the work of creation, God finished His work, and He rested on the Sabbath. And in the work of redemption, as soon as Jesus could say, It is finished, He began to rest. He rested on the Sabbath. God rested from His work of creation, and Jesus rested from His work of redemption. So, Holy Saturday is like a snapshot of this period of time in which we find ourselves living. I'm not just talking about our present day, although it is like that. We, we're in a time of waiting, a time of, of exile, a time when we cannot gather together as a church. But I'm also thinking more broadly that the church has always been in a season of waiting. We live in the time between the first coming of Christ and His second coming. Holy Saturday was a day of waiting. Jesus had promised that He would lay down His life and take it back up again on the third day. But the fulfillment of that promise could not yet be seen. It was a day that looked an awful lot like defeat. It was a day when by all accounts His his disciples, His friends, were in absolute fear and dismay. But it was not a day of defeat. Holy Saturday was a day of rest after the victory had been won, but before the victory was visible. We live in a similar time. We live in a time of anticipation. The victory has already been won. It is finished. Praise God for those three words. He didn't say, I am finished. He didn't say, it was finished. He said, it is finished. It has been finished, and it is still finished. In 2020, it is still finished. The victory has been won. The work is complete. All that is necessary for our reconciliation with God is done, finished. But like the disciples, we are still waiting for the return of our Savior and King. And when He comes, it will be more glorious than any of us could have ever possibly anticipated. Wherever you are right now, as you hear my voice, God is calling us to respond to what He has said and to the work that He has completed. If you're in Christ, the proper response for you is to keep trusting Jesus. He's worthy of your trust.
we're being reminded collectively right now how little control we have over the affairs of history. But the one who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who was born of the Virgin Mary, the one who suffered under Pontius Pilate, the one who was crucified, died, and was buried, he's got the whole world in his hands. He is not a wimpy Savior. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Holy Saturday reminds us that Jesus experienced the fullness of death and he conquered it from the inside out. He is victorious. He is truer than the rising of the sun. He is more steadfast than the earth itself. He is worthy of our trust and worthy of our hope. And if you are not in Christ, the proper response for you is to begin trusting in Jesus. Because if you are not in Christ, then you right now have no hope. This present situation in the world... It ought to be a reminder to us, to all of us, that our days are numbered. And putting our trust anywhere but on Jesus is like building a house on sinking sand. So please, I plead with you to not put your trust in that which is passing away. Put your trust on the rock of ages. He is worthy. Let's pray together. Lord, we we give you praise. We give you honor. We give you glory because you are worthy. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for, for my flock right now who is scattered, and yet you see them, and you know them, and you love them. I pray, Lord, right now that they would know your nearness to them, that they would hear it in your word, that they would feel it in your spirit. And Lord, if there is anyone right now who is listening to my voice, who has not yet put their trust in you, oh God, I pray that you would so afflict them until they turn from their sin and put their trust in you. God, I pray that you would open their eyes to your power, to your trustworthiness, to your love, and that they would flee from everything else and flee to Jesus, the one who has finished it. God, there's nothing left for us to do. There's no work that we can do to finish it even more because it is finished. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would impress that truth upon our hearts today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before I leave you, I want to speak a word of, of blessing over you, wherever you are. 
May the God who is mighty, the Lamb who is worthy, and the Spirit who is near fortify you to live faithfully in these days and all the days until Jesus comes. Amen and amen.